Hello, and thanks as always for listening to The Tully Show. I'm excited to bring you a very interesting interview about a downright fascinating piece of investigative journalism regarding the sordid and salacious behind-the-scenes story of Bob Ross, the happy little trees guy. The link to the story is in my Twitter. I encourage everybody to check that out. And while we're here, let me remind you of my Patreon. Excitement is building for the 20 years overdue release of some silly album of songs, Brian Cullen and I made in basically Brian Cullen's bedroom in his apartment in New York back in the early 2000s. That's going to go up uh, probably within a week or so. Plus, somebody sent me a link. According to them, I have done 69 Patreon-exclusive podcast so far. That doesn't seem possible at all, but it's sexy to think it might be true. Whatever the real number is, there's tons and tons of Patreon-exclusive stuff that is yours for the listening exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a fully obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from Hawaii, a screenwriter and film producer, a former Pentagon speechwriter and analyst, and most importantly for our present purposes, a journalist who is responsible for a sprawling, authoritative, and deeply fascinating article entitled Sex, Deceit, and Scandal, The Ugly War Over Bob Ross's Ghost. Hello and welcome, fresh off of his morning snorkel, Alston Ramsey. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. And the snorkeling wasn't great this morning. The visibility wasn't 100%. So cry me a river. Yeah, yeah, I will. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. If, if the roles were reversed, I don't know that I would be making time in my snorkeling schedule to, frankly, to, to talk to you. So I do. I do. <laughs> on behalf of everyone, I appreciate you being here. I reached out to you because of how much I enjoyed the Bob Ross article. I talked about it on a different podcast last week. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this very idiosyncratic career path you have thus far embarked on. Now, I understand that you had a background in journalism school and professionally before you went to work at the Pentagon, but there are a lot of journalists. How and why did you make the leap from doing what you were doing to writing speeches for the Secretary of Defense? A little bit of luck, I guess. A little bit of luck, a little bit of skill. I was working for a magazine in New York um, out of college. I actually did not go to journalism school. And I had, I had studied speechwriting in college, which one never really thinks I'm going to be a speechwriter because it's such a bizarre, esoteric thing. And out of the blue one day, I got an email from uh, Don Rumsfeld's chief speechwriter asking if I was potentially interested in a job. And it turns out the connection was uh, a gentleman named Peter Robinson who wrote Ronald Reagan's Tear Down This Wall speech, which he wrote when he was 27, um, to make you feel like you haven't accomplished anything in your life. And I knew him because I believe at the time he was the trustee at Dartmouth, my alma mater. If not, he was heavily connected in that world. Um, and so I just knew him socially. And so Reagan's 
chief speechwriter was an advisor to Rumsfeld at the Pentagon um, and the speechwriting office. So it was you know, six degrees of connection. They had an opening. Reagan's chief speechwriter reached out to his network. Peter Robinson had worked for him, kicked back my name. They reached out to me. I went and interviewed. I got hired by Rumsfeld and started about two months before he got fired. So right about the time I'm like, wow, I can, I can swing this. I can pull this off and getting used to the Pentagon. Then we came in one day and um, that was after the 2006 midterms where W kicked him to the curb unceremoniously. And um, yeah, so Robert Gates came into office and I decided to see what opportunities there were. And he was just an incredible person to get to work for and get to write for and get to travel with on this modified um, 747 known as the doomsday plane because it was designed to withstand a nuclear attack and launch the nuclear counter-strike. So we literally flew around on a plane that was designed for the end of the world, straight out of Dr. Strangelove. Right. You traveled around You traveled around quite a bit. You, your work took you to any number of countries, right? Yeah. We would go on these uh, week-long trips with Gates as a Secretary of Defense where you're a traveling delegation of 50 or 60, and you would go from capital to capital to capital um, 24, 36 hours at a time. And some of those trips would be round the world swings. So you would go from DC to Hawaii, to Australia, to India, then normally into the war zones because Gates would visit the war zones once every three or four months, then to Europe to go meet NATO and then back to DC and then want to sleep for about a month. But uh, get up the next day and go into the Pentagon for another fun-filled day. And you're just sitting there the whole time on airplane scribbling down would-be phrases to echo through history. Tear down this opera house, tear down you know, this Taj Mahal. I, I wish it were that sexy. The truth is when you're traveling, it's more toast for dinner or two-minute press avails. And the reason was, was that if we had a major speech, we had normally written that beforehand. So once we're getting on the trip, it's more just glorified secretary work of putting in changes by the boss and last minute stuff. Um, you know, back at the Pentagon, we did get to think big and go sit in a library and read history. And that's where I think we were really fortunate that Robert Gates was a secretary who was really interested in history and also really um, supported us in what we were doing in the speechwriting office. And the reality is, as a speechwriter, you're channeling someone else's voice. And I like to think of it as you're doing what they would do if they had all the time in the world, but they don't because, you know, he's running two wars across the planet and in charge of three and a half million people that work for the Defense Department. So a little busier than we were. Sure. And now you also worked very closely with General Petraeus in Afghanistan. Yes. yes. So I'd been at the Pentagon about four years and I got into business school and was planning to go, but also just trying to figure out if there was anything else to do while I was in government. And um, General McChrystal was looking for a speechwriter at the time. He was the commanding general. And so I put myself up for that and sort of went through an interview process and was scheduled to go to Afghanistan. And then there was a Rolling Stone article about him and he got fired. And so General Petraeus took over and um, you know, I met with a senior member of his staff and decided, yeah, let's let's go do this. I think then, it's been very then I hard went to business school after that, which was a little a little more um, a little more fun, I guess you could say. Really? 
You don't hear that about business school all the time. But l- well, let me ask you about Afghanistan. So I'm sure you went over there with impressions uh, and, and, and thoughts, and then you come home and you're aware of how it looks across the political spectrum and just across people's minds in America. What is something that you think people like yourself who were on the ground in Afghanistan understood about that conflict from an American an American military point of view that those of us back home weren't getting? You know, we know that uh, it's a complicated quagmire. We know that our soldiers are very brave. But was there something about it that you think makes a lot of sense to you that that, that you could share with the rest of us? That's a good question. I think it's the messy reality of insurgencies, right? That type of war. And we saw it in Vietnam. And when you're from afar, you can read the theory and you can read news reports. And that's what I was doing at the Pentagon. And part of the reason I volunteered to go over is I felt like I wanted to see it more up close and personal. And I was still at a very fortified base. So I was not front lines. I don't want to take away anything from people who actually had a uniform because I was a civilian. Um, You know, it's just, it's really, really messy when you're in a country like that, that's war-torn and doesn't have civil institutions. You start realizing that, that, you know, there's no easy solutions, none whatsoever. And, And I would think back to some of when we went into Iraq and you're trying to think like, well, we want to rebuild this country in our image. There's a lot of naivete and hubris involved. Um, I like to think back to, it was a funny story early on in Iraq where we were trying to, and we, whoever, um, I forget the, what was the, the entity that was the US led, whatever the US led quote unquote government was there, they were trying to restart the stock market, right? And they were trying, the people in charge of it didn't know what they were doing. I think they were in their twenties or something. They're very young. They're trying to create it in our image. So it's like, we own the stock market and we need some equivalent of SEC and we need all these computers and stuff. Some Iraqis came in at some point and they're like, look, we need some whiteboards and cell phones and we'll start a stock market tomorrow or next week. And it ain't the US version, right? It's not the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but it would work for them because that's how they do things and can get things done. I think you get to a place like Afghanistan, it's it's tribal and it has these tribal politics, but there's a real art to tribal politics and tribal societal structure. That's not how we envision governance, but it's also not like, you know, warring tribes fighting each other in the streets or anything. Like it's a very sophisticated way of organizing society that's been around for thousands of years. And so I think anytime a country that's organized in a very different way goes into another country and tries to figure that out, there's a really steep learning curve and you don't know what you don't know. I mean, to get back to the famous Rumsfeld-ism, the the known knowns, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, there was just a lot of that. And I think you just come around to, well, so what's your goal here? What are we trying to do? What does quote unquote stable Afghanistan look like? And I'm not sure we ever have figured that out, you know, and we'll find out soon because we're going to be out of there and we'll see sort of do they reach an equilibrium or does it turn into something more like what happened when we left Vietnam, where one country collapses and then it stabilizes in a way we might not agree with. Like, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen at this point. I'm not sure if I answered your question. It's a mess. <laughs> no, I, I think the short I answer get... is it's a mess and you yeah. have to accept that it's a mess and you have to be really 
I think you have to really dial back what your expectations are and, and, and really take into account like just the messy reality of humanity for lack yeah. of a, a better word. I mean, cause it's not, it's not easy. No, it's not. And I try to not be cynical or glib about it because there were human beings involved on, on both sides of that. And there continue to be, but uh, it's hard to not be cynical about that. You know, it's been said that you can win a war on a country, but you can't win a war on an idea. Like you can't win a yeah. war on drugs, for example. Yeah. And that would seem to, to fall under that category. And I keep waiting for somebody to tell me something who's been there that, that contradicts what I'm saying, and so far, I'm, I'm not really hearing it. No. Not, not that I expected to. Right. But, but that's it's, not but exactly. Also, Go ahead. Oh, it just, it gets, you know, like, precisely to that that point, it's stuff like, well, what's going to happen to women's rights in Afghanistan? It, it's pretty clear it's not going to go in a direction that we would agree with, because it's probably going to be really bad for women there. And that's tragic. The question is, what do you do about it? What can you do about it? Can you do anything about it? And I don't know. And that's the stuff that sure. I, I think, you know, keeps people awake at night because it's it's when you get down to that human level, it's it's awful. And yep. then to say there may be nothing we can do about it is even worse because you're potentially we're a country of incredible blessings and wealth, and we may just be casting less fortunate people to the wolves. Yeah. This is a roundabout way of getting to Bob Ross. I think we can both. I think we can both agree. Um, Happier, to an extent, yeah. Lots of happy little trees, anyway. So, from the Pentagon to business school to writing horror thriller type things for Bloomhouse <laughs> to journalism, has there at any point have you felt like you've had a career plan, or no. or uh, no? Okay, cool. That's about what I figured. It's like the Joker uh, and Batman, mm -hmm. I'm like the the dog chasing the car. I wouldn't even know what would happen if I caught it. Um, you know, I always love journalism and it's always been in the, I, I like different types of writing and every aspect has its high points and its low points. Um, and, and I think I always wanted to do something that was bigger and in proper investigation and always kept my eyes open. And then this, this Bob Ross, idea an article came up and i started to go down this rabbit hole and i just never knew how deep it was gonna get and it's been it's been a side project i think because journalism doesn't really necessarily pay the bills and um you know i work in in the fictional world of of hollywood i've made a couple movies with my brother and um, this has just been a side project i got passionate about it. I think you can't, as a writer, you never know what's going to get you excited. I, I wrote a screenplay about female professional wrestling in the 1950s based on a biography, true story. I didn't think I would become really excited about women wrestlers in the 50s, but I did. And um, same with Bob Ross. So uh, yeah, there's not really a, I don't have a grand plan. I don't have a five-year plan. So as you mentioned in this article, which is on thedailybeast.com, Melissa yes. McCarthy's developing what seems like a, a can't-miss Bob Ross documentary for Netflix. So the behind-the-scenes stories of the Bob, Bob Ross and the Bob Ross legacy were obviously not a secret, but how did this story, um, the story of him and of the fight over his name and likeness following his passing, how did it come on your radar? And more importantly, how did you get the personal ins with some of the principles in the story to be able to write it? Sure, sure. Well, I think it to go back, I think it was a secret in the sense mm -hmm. of what's really fascinating to me about the article is that we've seen all this focus on Bob Ross, um, you know, not 
all over the years, but certainly there's like a Wall Street Journal piece on him in the early 2000s and the New York Times. And then the last five, six, seven years, it's been like meteoric, all the media attention. And so you can look at every major media publication from the Atlantic to the New York Times, and they've all done something. And yet no one ever really dug into this issue. And there are public records, there are federal lawsuits, there are probate documents, and there's all sorts of stuff. And just, I think it's interesting that no one did in part because I feel like the people that were covering it, it's Bob Ross's, there's a, a kitsch aspect to it. And he's, he's a meme and he's social media. And so it, it kind of runs counter to the idea that you would apply real journalism and ask hard questions and then start poking around some. And so for me, it started with um, this New York Times video piece back in, I want to say it was the summer of 2019, or maybe it was spring when it aired. And it was about where are all the missing Bob Ross paintings? And it was a cutesy little video yes. piece. Yeah, you remember this. And well, no, 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 no. I'm a guy who wanted to buy one. So I did a bunch okay. of research into where did they all go? So I I, I would have watched that because I was, I was definitely in the market. Probably not a wise financial decision <laughs> to buy a Bob Ross painting. I'm led to believe if you can even find one. But anyway, go ahead. You can't find many of them. Um, That's right. And, and to me, like I watched this piece and there are a couple things about it where I'm like, well, first of all, the answer to the question ended up being a little self-evident that Bob Ross Incorporated, the company that Bob Ross founded, has all the paintings. Okay, that, that kind of stands up. Where are the paintings that he made? They're with the company he started. And yeah, the article, I mean, the video, it just was, I guess, guess a puff piece. And I don't want to detract from, you know, other writers and journalists, but it was kind of a puff piece. And and the thing that kind of made me raise my eyebrows a little is that that the family controlling it was this this elderly couple, um, Walt and Annette Kowalski, and then their daughter is the head of the company, Joan Kowalski. And so this, this video piece is all focused on them. And I come from a family that was that ran a small business, multi-generational textile business. And I just thought it was odd. I was like, did Bob Ross have any children or relatives? Why is it a totally different family running his company? Like something about it just seemed odd. And so I started poking around on the interwebs as one does. And somewhere deep in the internet, there was some little posting that that was, you know, a paragraph or something that was just like, oh, and there was a, a federal lawsuit that was recently decided against Steve Ross, Bob's son. And I'm like, wait, Bob Ross's son sued Bob Ross Inc. What on earth is this? And I, you know, being a, a journalist um, part-time, I immediately went and got onto the, the websites where you can get federal lawsuits and got into the federal lawsuit. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Because this federal lawsuit is dating back to other agreements and estate issues back from 1995 when he died. And so at that point, I, I'm trying to think who the first person I called was it was probably a um, an artist couple who were very well-known TV artists in the 1980s, also on this PBS television artist circuit, because there were many people beyond Bob, R Bob Ross. So they were named Gary and Catherine Jenkins, and they did flowers, um, floral painting. And they 
hate the Bob Ross company with a passion because they say, and everyone else in the industry agrees that Annette, and I'm trying to choose my words carefully just because there are, um, you know, legal considerations with a company known, known for being litigious, but, um, the long and short of it is that the Jenkins had developed a floral technique over decades. And then in the early nineties, the Bob Ross company came out with their own floral technique that looked astoundingly like the Jenkins. And it was billed as Annette Kowalski had developed this revolutionary floral technique for painting that was easy to learn. And she developed her own line of paint products that also bore an eerie resemblance to the Jenkins and they both shared the same paint manufacturer. But anyway, that's kind of an aside. I'm happy to talk more about it, but it was more that getting on the phone with these people that immediately were talking about how ugly the business tactics were when they were working in the 80s and 90s, and they got driven out of the industry by Bob Ross Incorporated. And that just led me to call other people and find other artists. And and I'd find that some people were terrified. Some people wouldn't talk to me. Some people talk to lawyers to find out if they should say anything and then would send a message that is on the advice of legal counsel. I declined to talk to you and you're, you're, I'm kind of sitting there like, what the hell is going on? Like this is television artists working for PBS and people are freaked out about getting sued. Right. We're still talking about Bob Ross here. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the part where you, you know, that's where like the rabbit hole just opened up and I just kept going down and down and down into it. And uh I mean, yeah, just talking to people who got felt like they got burned. And there's, you know, it was a tough article to report. I think that there's a lot of people with access to grind. There are a lot of people that have business interest, um, whether that's the Bob Ross company and maintaining their image and obviously not wanting to go back to uh, what a lot of people thought were unsavory business tactics or or the the lawsuits that the company filed against Bob Ross's estate, um, or my worst favorite or favorite slash least favorite was the company suing this dermatologist in Indiana for a half million dollars who did one episode of a children's television show with Bob Ross. You know, he did four other, three other episodes with this series, but you know, it's just one of these things where you like to think there's two sides to every story, but then you're like, wait, why did you sue a dermatologist in Indiana who's doing like a PBS children's TV show about a talking tree? Mm -hmm. Like, why would you do that? And there's media coverage about it at the time where you're like, this is just terrible. And there's a federal lawsuit about it. And you're like, what on earth is going on here? Well, okay. So, right. I actually did want to offer some contrarian takes on on all of this. Um, Go for it. Okay. So first of all, I encourage everybody to read the article. I'm going to put the link when I post this. But for those who haven't read it yet, in broad strokes, this is the story. The Bob Ross empire has actually never been more valuable than it is now. I wasn't really aware of this. He's reemerged. It makes sense, though, as this kitsch icon. He's hawking Mountain Dew on TV now. But um, and, and the, despite the fact that he named his son as his heir in his final will and testament, 
Uh, his family has no stake in the money because of legal agreements that Bob made with his partners during his lifetime and because of the hard-nosed legal tactics that you've made reference to that they have pursued since he passed. Now, the article's very fair and even-handed, and I'm sure you were covering your ass legally, as was <laughs> the, the website that posted it. But the story is, it's sympathetic to Bob and to Bob's son, Steve, um, to some extent, I'm sure that's just because they spoke to you on the record and the Kowalski family largely, they would only speak about the present, not about the past. Also, obviously, we all have warm fuzzies for Bob Ross, and we hate to see him getting screwed over by these mean, unscrupulous business people, if that is indeed what they are. Just for starters, let me give you two contrarian takes that I have on this. Um I had the idea, I think many of us did, watching Bob Ross on TV. He was like the platonic ideal of the peace-loving hippie who lived in the coolest painted van you'd ever seen in your entire life. The behind-the-scenes guy was maybe a little bit more of a mixed bag than the guy that we assume we were dealing with on screen. He was a serial philanderer. That seems pretty well known. That's not the worst thing you can say about somebody who enjoyed fame and enjoyed being the center of attention. It was the 80s, too. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> In the context of this story and what we are to make of what his partners later did to him, his empire, his success, his renown all begins with the fairly brutal betrayal of his own former mentor, a betrayal that completely broke that former mentor's heart. Yes? It broke his heart. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um and some I, of the things I, that you've that you've been alluding to, perhaps Annette Kowalski did to this other person's line, are exactly the things that was Bob was very much book. right, yeah, right, right. To sure. what he had done, I, ripping off his mentor. I, I, yes, the painting style is completely taken from Bill Alexander, who's a gentleman who figured out this way you could paint a painting in thirty minutes over decades by necessity of the faster I paint paintings, the more paintings I make, the more paintings I sell, and. Yeah. Bob worked for that company. I, I don't, you know, Bill certainly felt betrayed. It is still a little unclear to me exactly where the decision to break off came from. Um, Bob may not have been getting credit for a product he developed for the company. It may not have been clear that he would take over because Bill didn't own his own company. That's the way a lot of these things worked is that there was a business guy who owned the company and he's giving Bill Alexander a cut of the royalties, which is not totally dissimilar from the way that the Bob Ross company was set up where there's a paint manufacturer that manufactures paint and kicks back, you know, 10 to 15% of gross sales to them as part of like a licensing fee. Um, yes. Bob went off on his own to create his own fortunes and Bill and a lot of other people working certainly felt that it was, a betrayal and that Bob stopped giving him credit, which was a difference. If you look at the period where Bob is still working for his company, but has his own TV show and his, his, his career is on the scent, he would give Bill credit and say, hey, I learned this great style from Bill and he's my mentor and he's guided me. And, you know, we have this friendship and everything. After they started the company, he didn't really mention him again. And he would go out of his way to avoid it. And so you'd see in news articles, he you know passively learned this painting technique versus this, wait, this guy created this painting technique for decades and you worked for his company, you know, where's the credit? And so some of some of their mutual friends, that's what burned them is that Bob wasn't giving him credit. And, and Bob would tell them, well, I can't because my partners don't want me to. Now, 
is that really the case or was Bob just didn't Bob didn't like conflict in general, even though behind the scenes, he certainly was a savvy businessman. But I do think I, I want to draw this distinction. Yes, he's not exactly what you see on TV in real life, but by no means is he, you know, there's politicians that are complete assholes when the elevator door closes. He's not that. Everyone yeah. who knew him personally is like, he's a lovely human being. He's kind and generous all those things that you would expect. He's not like a polar opposite. He's complicated. He's complex. The fact that he could be an artist and also be a hard-nosed businessman, I don't think the two have to necessarily, um, you know, they're not diametrically opposed. You just don't see it that often. And so I think he and his business partners were in lockstep that they they were running a business. They wanted it to be successful and they were successful and they engaged in what to a lot of the artists was um, hard-nosed business tactics. I think it's hard for us to square that with this idea of like happy little trees and everything, but like everyone's got to, everyone's got to make the happy buck as, as he put it, which was an expression that he did take from Bill Alexander who coined it in the first place. Well, and, and hap and happy little trees. That was uh, that was a Bill Alexander thing as well, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe not trees per se, certainly trees, times but happy little cabin happy little road happy little anything like yeah it was yeah. it was a vernacular he developed um you know it's kind of a vaudeville show that he was doing like shopping malls he's doing shows in shopping malls and teaching classes and developed it over over decades and then bill came on as one of his apprentices and, and learned from him um which is you know nothing untoward about that that's what you expect he wanted to teach apprentices to go out and teach his painting style across the country and the second kind of contrarian point, we've already sort of touched on this. It definitely seems fair to say Bob would not have been Bob Ross were it not for the real intense hands-on nature of the partnership and the financial support, the material support. He lived with the the Kowalskis. And, yes. uh, and, and you also make the point in the article that perhaps the continuing success of, of Bob Ross remaining relevant in the culture, not necessarily... W See, I just tend to think as somebody who grew up just just getting stoned and watching Bob Ross on TV. I could see him just some kid just finding that on YouTube and going, Oh my God, I don't know that that really needed a lot of help to stay around, but I have no doubt the Kowalski family had Joan has, has made the right moves to, to keep him relevant. So they, they played a, a huge role. He probably would not have been Bob Ross without this family. And as you say, he was a savvy guy. He was able to understand a contract he did enter into all of these contracts. I never really saw well, the the okay the way the manner in which they have tried to squeeze every last bit of blood out of the contracts that they signed seems very very contracts. unsavory. Verbal contracts, okay. A verbal contracts worth the paper it's written on, which right. it's not written on paper, so it's not worth anything. Um, well. I don't think it's contrarian. I would actually say that there is a irony, a cruel irony on a lot of levels with, have you ever heard of Bill Alexander before this? No. No, right? Bill Alexander won an Emmy in 1979. He was in the 1980s. If you went through an airport with Bill Alexander, you would be stopped left and right by people who love Bill Alexander. He was on Johnny Carson in 1988 or 1989. He was a big deal. 
you've never heard of him now because you know, his company kind of folded. Um, lovely woman picked up the pieces and it's still out there and you can go and he's on YouTube, but you haven't heard of it because he went off the air and that's that. Were it not for Walt and Annette keeping the company going and taking proactive measures to keep him on the air and PBS, I think it's very questionable whether he would have stayed on the air through the 1990s. He died in 1995, just for viewers mm -hmm. who aren't aware. Mm -hmm. I think he would have just disappeared by the early aughts. He is still around, but he wasn't a huge deal. Like if you read, like there's a Wall Street Journal article, I think it was in 2006, the lead of it is clearly designed for an audience who likely doesn't know who Bob Ross is, just the way it's described. Right. Yeah. You see him on YouTube, but were it not for Walt and Annette in the 90s and then Joan getting involved in the licensing, I just don't think, I don't think he even would have been around to hit the YouTube movement. So, and I would call it an irony because what's pretty clear is that he did not want his legacy to end up with them. And so he, it's interesting, he was sickly um, and had some health issues and he knew he was going to die for a period of time and he consciously wanted to be immortal. How many people consciously set out to be immortal and actually achieve that? And he did. However, it's through the hands of these people that he didn't want to have control of his images. And I think there's another irony and I can only speculate on this one, which is, the record certainly suggests that the relationship with the Kowalskis was really, really ugly for the last part of his life and these lawsuits afterwards. They, for 25 years or whatever, have told this story about how everything was hunky-dory and they were great friends. And they were for a long time. And it was a very close business partnership and it went well and they were you know, clearly very tight and in lockstep. I don't know about you. I personally, it would be a tough pill to swallow to have to invent that stuff out of thin air and maintain that party line for 25 years to say like, oh, we loved each other. Yeah, you sued his estate. You obviously didn't. You, you were in this back and forth. And, you know, it's the idea like, I don't know. I wouldn't want to live a lie where my my livelihood depends on that. Well, okay, right. And that kind of leads me to my next question. It didn't seem like it needed to be this way. It seemed like they could have had most of what they currently enjoy peacefully, but they've got they got everything, just about everything, pretty acrimoniously. Now, uh I, again, I know that Joan Kowalski didn't want to talk to you about the past, but you talked to a bunch of other people who were around as all these things were going down. Did anyone give you any meaningful insight into why they had to be so petty? I'll give you the specific example of, you know, Bob's body is barely cold and they're telling his widow, not just we get the paintings that are in his studio, that's not much of a gray area. You know, we need a, a paintbrush. If there's an easel hanging around... Okay, 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 right. But there's no gray area whatsoever about maybe his widow would like to keep a couple of his paintbrushes. <laughs> then they have very, very little value to us relative to what they have to her. Telling her, don't touch a thing. Y you could have been mildly generous and it wouldn't have, relative to the hall you were in, you inheriting because of the nature of the legal agreement, 
you gained so little by being so petty. Has anyone offered you any insight into why they had to be quite that hard nosed? Not really. And and I'll throw one out that I find personally even more petty, um, which is, uh, you know, God willing, no one has to, but most of us at some point are going to have to deal with wrapping up someone's estate. And as part of the state process, you know, the state pays out all debts and anyone can file a claim. I'm owed money, the state pays me. And, you know, in Bob's case, the there are two claims, one for his funeral from his widow and the Mayo Clinic for cancer treatments. Those are pretty normal. Then the other one was that the Kowalskis filed a personal reimbursement claim, as well as one for the company to reimburse them for travel and trips when uh, Bob was getting cancer treatments, many of which Annette was with him. And so when I think about that, and they went back 15 months. So the equivalent would be, you go and visit your friend who's sick and you guys like you're there with him when he's going through chemotherapy, you fly in to help him and you guys go out to dinner and whatever. 15 months later, your friend dies and you go through your credit card statements over the last 15 months and you find every expense that is from that trip. And then you ask the estate to reimburse you for that trip that you went to visit your friend. And in this case, it seems even weirder to me because like, it's not just your friend, it's a business partner. And, and we're not talking a lot of money. It was the personal reimbursement was, I think, $2,500. You know, this is a company kicking off the equivalent of something like half a million in modern day money per year that's netted, grossed them, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the prior decade. You're asking them to the state to reimburse you two and a half grand. I can't answer that. Like I, I was talking to a friend who was like, well, there's two sides to every story. There must have been a reason for it. I'm like, what reason is there for that? You know, my yeah. unfortunately, my mom's no longer with us. And we were at hospitals and dealt with chemotherapy. It's like the thought of going back and asking her estate to pay me back for lunch that time when we went and got it's just it's it's ludicrous so you know the this the only speculation would be there's some sort of vindictiveness because to your question i'm not sure they could have had everything they wanted which was you the area that's not in dispute is that the company had rights to use bob's name and likeness on paint products right? Yes. And the company moved forward and they sold paint products for, you know, 15, 17 years after he died. It's only getting into this licensing to everything, whether it's an energy drink or a Chia Pet or Mountain Dew. That's only where you start getting into this new territory of like, okay, we're licensing his name and likeness on anything and everything. And that gets back to your point about contracts, that there, there weren't any contracts on that. And what Bob was doing in his will is specifically addressing intellectual property and particularly name likeness, stuff like that was tied up in a nice little bow as much as I read it. I'm not a lawyer. He certainly had hired the state attorney and they brought in an intellectual property expert to do that part of it. That area, my read on the documents is that area was always left a little bit in a gray area because they sued his estate and eventually his half-brother settled. The widow settled as well because 
you know, who wants to be involved in a multi-year lawsuit when you're paying lawyers? Um, eventually you settle. And those settlements left open this area of, well, anything he gave in his lifetime to other people, obviously it was his to give in his lifetime. And so that was the gray area that kind of led to these lawsuits 25 years later, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, ironic's not the word, just strangely for all of the nitty gritty arguing over splitting hairs, no one involved in that argument back in the 90s could have foreseen the bounty that they were actually not even the most optimistic investor in Bob Ross Inc. foresaw energy drinks and and well the Chia Pet frankly I think you could have seen that one coming that's the only one it's he's tailor made for a Chia Pet and here's something interesting though is that Bob and 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 Joan Kowalski says this and I think she's 100% right Bob would have loved a lot of this because yeah he, you know, at one point was planning this stage show in Branson and he even writes in a memo about like, you know, soap on a rope and all these other items that, you know, sell in tourist meccas. And he did this MTV commercial that was very self-effacing. He loved all that. He really did. He liked he liked poking fun at himself with what he was doing because it was part of his his true belief and his love about like, he wanted to teach people to paint. He wanted you to go out and try to paint because it's a hobby that anyone should be able to do. And, and there's this, there's this fun debate that dates back to the 1950s and the very first television artist about, you know, um, fine art versus hobby art. Right. And it's this, it's almost this ivory tower debate. And it's almost like a red state, blue state thing. It hits all these fault lines and this first TV artist in the 50s, a guy named John Nagy, you know, the, the Museum of Modern Art's going after him for his show. This is like teaching people how to draw on charcoal in 15-minute increments. And, and people in the ivory tower are like, you're destroying art. And Bill Alexander dealt with the same thing. And it's just this bizarre debate. And I actually I use the term um, fine art mistakenly when I was around Gary Jenkins, the floral artist, and he just looked at me and he's like, well, what is fine art? And I'm like, oh, I just stepped in it, didn't I? Because it's a good point. It's a good valid point about, well, what is art? You know, what, what is art and what do we, and and I, I studied art history in Florence with a professor at an Ivy league school, Dartmouth college. Um, So I'm, I'm, well-versed in it. And, and there's a lot of people that hate Bob Ross's style of art. They'd be caught dead before they put it on their wall. And my counter would be like, well, there's a lot of people that like Bob Ross that would be caught dead before they'd put a Piet Mondrian or a Kandinsky on their wall. Like yes. or Jackson Pollock, who Bob in one article called Jackson Pollard, um, which I guess you can figure out the, the, the combination of words there. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's kind of an esoteric academic debate, but it's a, a real one because what they were trying to do is, is, you know, why can't art be a hobby? Why does it have to be some rarefied thing? Like I went to this seminar with Steve Ross and my first day I came out of it and I got an oil painting that's, you know, a thousand times better than any art I've ever made in my life in elementary or middle school or high school. And it's like an oil painting. Did it in a day. Followed the step-by-step instructions, and like it's pretty cool. It hangs on my apartment wall now. Let me ask you. Let me ask you one more question about all of this. So, 
throughout the article, Joan Kowalski, the daughter, is adamant that, and you just said this, that she is... What she is doing is exactly what Bob wanted. Bob would have wanted his work to live on, his message, and frankly, let's be honest, his 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 image, his fame yes. to he live wanted to be on. Immortal. Yes, like, exactly. See this, like he says that in the press, which is kind of bizarre. So yes, a hundred percent. Did you ask her if it was so important to her to uphold his vision on the one side of things, if she also thought that she was living up to his financial wishes, which quite obviously uh, she is not. The family is not. And if not, how do you sleep at night with that dual knowledge? That's just something that she would not address in the sense of um, choosing my words carefully. Yep. Why don't, why don't I use someone else's words? Someone who mm-hmm. worked with her, um, who was a, worked with her at the company, worked for the company and, and left, he, he used the expression, quote unquote, slippery like an eel, um, which when I plumbed any of these lawsuits or anything, it was very much like, well, I was young. I don't remember anything crazy happening. And that was kind of it. And when yeah. I followed up with specifics, hey, the heroes document because she she brushed some stuff off as like well these are just rumors and some stuff was rumors there's some things we didn't put in the article that um uh believe it or not are even more salacious um that for a variety of reasons we just didn't didn't feel like um it made sense in the context of the story we were doing and i will should just mention here the daily beast was wonderful to work with and their entertainment editor marlo stern and their editor-in-chief were just great and supportive and dialed in and, and magnificently helpful in putting together the, the article. So just credit where credit's due. Um, she just didn't address that stuff and I think brushed it off. And I think that is of a piece with, you know, the, the, the bigger PR side of this has always been to not talk about any of that, right? Not because the, the reality is, my read on it certainly is that Bob Ross didn't want this broader intellectual property owned by the company. He changed his will to explicitly give his intellectual property, ignoring the side that was associated with paints that no one really disagrees with, to his son and his half-brother. You know, and that's what the paper trail says. And they just don't really address that. And so I think it is right that that Bob being out there Joan is doing what Bob would have wanted in that respect on the broader side. But yeah, that question of what would he wanted the profit and the money all to be going to them? I mean, has he changed his will to exclude that? Uh, you know, but that said, you know, a federal court ruled in Bob Ross Inc.'s favor. Now I can talk That's about right. that decision. Uh, I think it was, uh, I, I talked to an attorney who felt that that was largely had to do with the inaction on the case for many, many years. I don't think the you know, judges aren't always right. And, and I certainly read it differently where I don't think the judge really addressed the fact that the offending action was more about licensing that started, you know, 2013, 2012, 2014, really became profitable 2015. That's not the distant past, right? 
as well as this other bizarre thing where Steve Ross, Bob's son, never knew about these changes to his dad's will until 2016, 2017, that time frame, because Bob's half-brother, who was the executive of state, just you know, didn't tell him. And, and, and there was some weird family dynamics there um, that I don't think sure. were particularly pleasant. So, you know, I, I read the judge. It just didn't seem like they addressed some of the, the critical issues. Like Steve was sticking very specific it's getting into esoteric intellectual property law, but he was sticking very specifically to right of publicity, which is this narrow, this narrow commercial area of, you know, effectively licensing someone's name and likeness on, you know, Chia Pets, Mountain Dew, whatever it may be, um, which passes down according to state law. Esoteric, probably not of interest to anyone except me and other weirdos who like reading, you know, legal documentation. <laughs> Uh, so, so this is, this is where it sits and, uh, you wrap the story up in a, in a neat bow that I don't want to spoil for people. I want to encourage people again to check it out. Uh, sex, deceit, and scandal. I was a little bit disappointed. There was a little bit of sex, but with that title, I was expecting a lot more Bob Ross sex. I know, I know you need to do what you need to do to get people to click on your article. I was satisfied with my reading experience, but I, I was expecting greater sexual exploits of Bob Ross. That's probably just me. I think... Well, I would just say, like, to to satisfy your need, I think there was a lot of it in general. He was he was a ladies' man. Uh, may not have come across in the article, and you know, it's the it's the eighties. What can you do? Uh, Sex, deceit, and scandal: the ugly war over Bob Ross's ghost is highly recommended. Available for all to read at thedailybeast.com. Are you coming back from Hawaii? If so, why? Um. That's a hard one. It's paradise. But yes, yeah. probably because I have to, you know, get work that pays bills. And most of that is in Los Angeles. So I will probably be returning there in the not too distant future. And it will be sad because I can't do my morning circle before sitting down at my desk to do podcast and other yes. work. Yeah, no, we're all we're all pretty disappointed about that. You must be Thank very, you. very sad about that. <laughs> feel very bad for me. I know. Uh, thank you for your time and your insight in this article. You're at Alston Ramsey on Instagram. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>